Hello. Good morning. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I uh, have just finished a call with the great Kevin McCann. That is the podcast you are about to hear momentarily. Kevin McCann is a uh, a wonderful dude who uh, kind of came in and swept me off my feet, quite frankly. I, I didn't have a podcast ready to go. Again, busy week. Very busy week. Oh, there's my wife calling me. Let's get her on the podcast without her knowing. Hi, Ryan. Hey, where are you? Uh, I'm uh, just leaving. I was sitting in the parking lot recording a podcast with uh, Kevin McCann. No, what's weird is you uh, stalking me on Find My iPhone for an hour and watching. No, I have any. I'm coming home to eat right now. Because I spent $60 at Lombardi's, and I was upset that you were at Wegmans. I thought you were getting food. I got bread to try the thing, and that's it. Okay. All right. I'll be right home. I love you. And tomorrow tomorrow we're going to my dad's for chilies. I don't want to go to your dad's. I want to watch football all day. Just a couple hours, and you're going to watch football with my dad. So right. Family day. Uh, a couple hours after you're coming. Ryan. Ryan. Ugh. Oh, boy. Well, uh, do I include that in the podcast or not? Because that's going to get me murdered if I do. <laughs> you see what I mean? I don't want to. It's not that I, I love her dad. I love her dad so much. He's. You could not ask for a better father-in-law. You couldn't. But it is Saturday night. It is almost 10 o'clock. I have not had a break since last Sunday. All I want to do tomorrow is not have to go anywhere. That's it. I have work to do tomorrow. Here's the funny thing. I don't even have a day off tomorrow. I have my lap bringing my laptop home because I got a shit ton of work to do. But at least that can be done from home. I just want to at least just spend time at home and, God forbid, maybe watch a little football. Not going to happen. Going to my father-in-law's. Yay. Anyway, um, speaking of busy, it was a busy week. It was very busy. I was honored to once again MC the Big Brothers Big Sisters Gala. That actually happened Friday night at the Winter Garden. Saturday morning, I was honored to be a guest judge at the Country Max Pet Costume Contest alongside Scott Spazano and Stacy Pension. And Terry Clifford. And it's really interesting because I had never met Terry Clifford before. Um, and I I had met, but bar- I barely know Scott Spazano. I'd met him before, but very briefly and, you know, just not much. And people always just assume radio people know each other. But, I mean, for the years that I worked in radio, I worked across the street from those guys. We didn't see each other much. You know, it was pretty rare. Every once in a while, a client would do like a double remote where it would be, you know, one of it would be like me and, you know, somebody from the other radio stations would be there all at the same time. But for the most part, we never really saw each other that much. So today I just I had a good time watching Terry Clifford be Terry Clifford. I didn't know much about her. You know, she was always on morning radio when I was on morning radio. So it's not like I got to listen to Terry Clifford much, but I watched her MC this pet costume contest and, and the, the lady's full of talent. I could see why she's one of Rochester's best and most popular um, media personalities. You know? Spazano, on the other hand. No, I'm just kidding. Scott was great, too. It was great to hang out with him. Uh, And Stacy, of course, as always. Absolutely perfect. Big Brothers Big Sisters Gala was a lot of fun. My reverse raffle, I think, went well. I don't know. I... 
I'm self-conscious about the reverse raffle because in Rochester, reverse raffles aren't really a thing. But back home, they're everything. So basically, a reverse raffle is it's a raffle in reverse. You don't want to win. You want to survive. It's like a survivor's pool in raffles. We're going to draw every number. You want to be the last number drawn, okay? And the last number drawn wins a grand prize. And this year, brought to you by Dixon Schwabel, now known as DS and Co. It was a one thousand dollar Wegman's gift card was the grand prize. And thanks to many wonderful donations from restaurants across Rochester, I could never name them all, but thank you to all of them. They uh, donated the prizes along the way. So like every three or four numbers out, we'll win a prize, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I it, I always have a hard time explaining it to people. People are always like, what the hell is going to happen? Is this guy really going to draw 100 numbers in front of us while we eat dinner? But by the end of it, it gets pretty intense. People like it. It's a reverse raffle. It's fun. Anyway, thank you to everybody who came to Big Brothers Big Sisters Friday night. Huge success. I do uh, have the honor of emceeing a ton of events around Rochester. I still love doing that. I honestly, I, you know, I, I thought when I left radio that that might go away, but it didn't. And I can't even tell you how honored I am at the fact that it didn't go away. I love that I still get asked to do stuff, but this one particularly is special to me because I have skin in the game with Big Brothers Big Sisters. I am a former Big Brother, and I'm a current board member. And uh, it's just an honor, a true honest-to-gun honor. So, okay, uh, without further ado, it's going to be a weird day. Speaking of football, no Browns, no Bills today. Browns with the big win Thursday night. Bills Bills are going to be just fine. I know they lost Monday night, but it, the Bills could have very easily won that game, probably should have won that game. And the Bills are, listen, at this point, barring any injuries, the Bills are deep playoff threats, if not Super Bowl threats at this point. So you guys can relax, okay? You guys can. Me, on the other hand, with my Browns, I'm still shitting myself. I don't know what's going to happen. But anyway, thank you for listening. Enjoy Kevin McCain. I have set up. I'm actually doing this podcast while driving. Okay. Parking lot up until just now. And I just <laughs> pulled out. But I have a, I built a contraption in my, I have like an SUV. I have a Chevy Tahoe. I built okay. a contraption so that I can podcast in the car safely, hands free. <laughs> <laughs> I have better Wi Fi in my car than I have in my backpack. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> How you doing, Kevin? I'm good, man. How are you? Oh God! Can can you can can an entrepreneur talk to an entrepreneur for a second? Hit me with it. Do you have days when you're like, "What am I doing?" Other than seven days a week, no. 
does that still happen even to you? Your level of success? You be at this point, you're legendary. You're Kevin McCann. You're McCann's local me. You're telling me even you still have days where you're like, how am I doing? How did this happen? Why? What? Why? We didn't make money here. We didn't do this. Person didn't show up. That did like left, right, left, right. I don't mean to just bitch, but you're telling me that still happens to you. Seven days a week, and I'm only open for five. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, business business is not for the meek. It is not for the the uh, the the lighthearted. It is. It is. Uh, for people who have uh, a lot hardier stuff than me, that's for sure. <laughs> what is what? I, I remember we talked once on the radio, but like, what's your story again? Aren't you um, is from Syracuse? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up. Uh, I grew up outside of Syracuse in a, a little suburb called Chittenango, and uh, um, from Syracuse, I, I went to Rockport and. Uh, Graduated with a degree in theater, and then from SUNY Brockport, I, I kind of went after the whole, you know, uh, career in theater thing and realized pretty quickly that that was uh, a rat race that I was um, I was not necessarily destined to be successful in. So uh, ended up in food and decided to take that serious, went to Culinary Institute of America and you fast forward and here I am. Well, so tell me about theater for a second though. What was the thing that got you passionate about theater? Like you're a kid. Is it, is it TV? Is it movies? Is it Broadway? Is it, what is it that you look at and you go, Oh my God, I want to do that. You know, here's the funny thing. I swear to God. Um, I, I, I wanted literally nothing to do with it. Like I, I, I did a couple of shows like in middle school. Right. And, um, it was fun, but it was not necessarily going to be my thing. But, uh, my mother was a teacher in the school district and one of her colleagues had a daughter who was a couple grades older than myself. And she was an extra, she was just going to be a dancer in the, the spring musical, and uh, she needed a dance partner. And my mother came to me and was like, you need to be Laura Hauk. You need to be her dance partner. And I was like, under no circumstances <laughs> am I going to do that? And my mother said, I'll give you $150. Oh, nice. And I was like, yeah, okay. Then, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this dance thing. And I got there and... The, the theater professor uh, that was an English professor um, in the high school, and he was a really great guy. And I had a great time uh, kind of like in the experience of kind of that, that team atmosphere and watching how it was he was trying to develop and work with the rest of the, the, the cast. And I was like, you know what? This seems like it'll be kind of fun. So I just kind of kept going. Were, were you an athlete? Because, I mean, you're built like a freaking shit brick house, as they say. <laughs> like, you look, I mean, you know, I look at you and I just, I picture middle linebacker. Like, am I wrong? Are you a gentle soul or were you out there? Uh, no, I mean, I I definitely, I was, so, for what it's worth, my time in high school was not nearly uh, as uh, hell-bent as it could have been because I was, I was focused on school. And then I went right from school to either football or, 
uh, lacrosse practice or in the winters I was uh, skiing and, and teaching as an instructor at the mountain that I worked at and um, directly after whatever that practice was went into the theater rehearsal of of the time and so a lot of times I was busy from like you know six thirty seven o'clock in the morning until like nine o'clock at night mm-hmm. what what that's good training for entrepreneurship speaking of by the way yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I played uh, I played end on both sides of the ball in football. I, I, I was a, a, a def- long stick, middle crease uh, uh, in lacrosse. And um, so a lot of my job was to just kind of like play a role, just right. like it was in theater, right? Like it was just like, you know, here's your piece of the puzzle and, and execute that piece. And, you know, I... I try to still do that, I guess, even as a, you know, an owner and, and manager of my business, I still try to understand that kind of mentality of play your role so that everybody else can play their role. You know, how do you, how do you find that Kevin? Like, how do you find your role? Because is, do you find yourself tempted at all to know how to do every job and, I, and for well, you can answer that because I'm assuming the answer to that's yes, right? Yes, I know how to do every job. Yeah, I actually had that conversation today. Uh, Did you really? Okay, well, yeah, expand, I, you know, literally, expand. literally, one of my cooks was asking me, um, not that he was pushing back, but he he was asking a question about something that I had literally shown him at least a dozen times, mm-hmm. and he was a little surprised by the fact that I said, you know, I'm very consistent if nothing else. And I feel like you have to be as a business owner and as a cook in general, like if you're not consistent in, in your process, then you can't expect consistency in your product. And, um, I know what my answer was going to be because it would be the same no matter who asked it. And, when I gave him the answer, he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, man. I was like, you can, you can, you can guarantee that this is the way I will always do it. And you can guarantee this is the way that I've always taught it because it's the best way to do it. So, you know, and, 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 you know, he was like, well, I I guess I'll trust you. And I was like, if you can't trust (laughs) me with trying to tell, talk to you about my food, and I don't know where we're going, right? So, <laughs> right, right. Um, what about what? What if somebody comes to you with a suggestion on something that you do? Let's say it's a situation where he's got a point. Has that happened to you before, where he's got a point and you hadn't thought of it that way before? Hundred percent. Are you receptive to that kind of stuff? If you're not, then you're not going to succeed in this industry. Also, right? right? I mean. Right. If if you're just going to be steadfast in my way is the only way, then that's then then you you're you're putting yourself in a position to never have any more growth at all professionally, and that doesn't mean it. I mean you have to be open to that from your employees, from your uh, your peers within the industry, from your mentors within the, the industry, from 
from people who are not even in your industry, but who might have good ideas about how to apply certain concepts. And I'm always open to those things, you know? You are a, you're a butcher by trade, right? You're like, aren't you like, you're like classically trained, right? You're, you're an actual trained chef or butcher. Yeah. I mean, uh, both my wife and I were, were graduates of the culinary Institute of America. Right. So we, we entered into, were trained in and are graduates of classical French cooking. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of goal of that school is not to have anybody that is, uh, specifically trained in any one discipline, right. But to, to graduate people who, um, who have a broad understanding of the industry of technique and that can step into multiple situations in in very much like kind of like a Swiss Army knife, right? Like, um, a sw- you're you're not gonna like as a, a professional electrician bring a Swiss Army knife into a situation as your primary tool, right? But um, in a you, you know if if you had to and you had it, it still works, right? And so that's kind of the idea that the school kind of goes by and. You know, there are students that are going to come out of it with an idea of what they want to do, and they will have taken time while they were there to hone those skills more specifically through, you know, extracurricular activities or out of school work or, you know, certain mentorship programs that they could have been a part of. And that's kind of what I did with me. Um, I kind of realized pretty quick that I thought it was really fucking cool. And just kind of kept applying myself in those scenarios to learn more. Worked for one of the the, uh, chef instructors who had his own butcher shop, was making sausages, doing, uh, you know, barbecues and uh, pig roasts and, and, you know, breaking down deer with him during season and and all of these different things. And and I kept trying to, like, apply that post-graduation, you know, as a... Uh, a teaching assistant and then, you know, in my next couple of jobs as well. So you, uh, you know, we're so lucky to have you in Rochester and it occurs to me that you grew up in Syracuse, you go to New York city, you go to the, you go to the CIA, which is a huge deal because, you know, when I think of butchers, yeah, I think of a guy who probably grew up on a farm and he's hacking away at the meat and, but you're a classically trained chef. I just think that's a very, very cool fun fact that I hope people learn from this podcast about you. I don't know if people would know that. I mean, obviously your food is loved. Everyone loves everything you do, but I don't know if people would realize you're classically trained, but how did we get lucky enough to get you in Rochester? I mean, how does Kevin McCann go Syracuse, New York, Rochester? How did, how did that happen? You know, um, when I, when I went to, to culinary school originally, it was to do catering uh, of all things. I just kind of, from a, a, a business perspective, I kind of looked at it and I said, you know, as a caterer, you're only going to spend money on something that you've already sold, right? So yeah. it, it that, you know, from a fiscal perspective made a lot of sense to me. But really quickly, you know, the first class I was in was the meat room to break down beef. And 
it was just such an amazing thing that like I got into it. Right. And, you know, in middle school, I was that idiot who couldn't hold his lunch down when we dissected frogs. Right. Like I totally tossed cookies on the floor, period, point blank. And, uh, so, you know, you fast forward to me being at culinary school and starting to butcher and, um, I, I went to a farm and did a field slaughter of, of pigs with one of my professors and, um, this, you know, Austrian man who is an institution at the CIA, his name's Hans Siebald. And, you know, he made this whole thing, not just informative, but, um, almost solemn in the way that he talked about, the the sacrifice of the animal the respect that we had to have for it as people and how we had to utilize as much of the animal as possible to make that respect real um and you know so i was i was full in i was sold i i was going and post-graduation you know i got a uh through um through connections at the CIA, I got a job in Manhattan at a really major meat purveyor in the city called DeBraga and Spittler. They provide meat to every major restaurant that you can imagine. They dry age in huge facility that they have. They uh, portion cut for uh, you know all of the restaurants. They have a little bit of an online ordering uh, presence as well. But long story short, it was a great opportunity. But as a production manager, I had no hands on product. So I kind of, I, I let that kind of come and go, uh, took it for what it was, uh, you know, put that experience in my tool belt. But um, when I left there, you know, uh, I, I, started an apprenticeship with a pretty well-known butcher shop in the Hudson Valley and in Brooklyn called Fleischer's, um, who has taken on several iterations since then. But that was kind of like the, the mothership of, of craft butcher opportunities, literally in the entire country. They were one of the first people to kind of bring back this idea of kind of whole animal butchery. And, um, you know, within circles, they were like the thing as much as the Culinary Institute of America is like the culinary school to go to Fleischer's was like the place to work if you were trying to be a butcher. So I got right. super lucky and started an apprenticeship there. Um, and, you know, after going through that program, I, I helped a, a group of farmers start a butcher shop, a co-op of farmers uh, out of Madison County, start a, a butcher shop in Manlius, New York, outside of Syracuse called Side Hill Farmers. And that was a really cool opportunity in and of itself, where I got to kind of take all of these concepts and, and ideas of things that I wanted to do, programs I wanted to put into place with regards to whole animal utilization, you know, from literally whole carcass to fully produced food of every single kind that you can think of. Um, I got to put that into use and I got to conveniently do it on somebody else's dime. Uh, yeah. And so that, <laughs> that was, was I mean, 
you you can't you can't expect any kind of like better opportunity to no. set yourself up to then put your own business plan together you know yeah you, you you're you right like you got to basically run a business without having any of the responsibility of <laughs> the of running the business right not not that you didn't have any of the responsibility but you know what i'm saying it wasn't no, the buck you are 100 correct i had yeah. no responsibility i had no financial burden yeah. And if you don't have yeah. financial burden, then <laughs> you, you have nothing, you have nothing yeah. to risk. And, you know, that's, that's the biggest difference between what I did then and what I'm doing now, which is I had no risk then. And I literally have everything at risk now, you know, speaking, speaking of risk, you know, you, you keep talking about whole, the whole animal that you use, the whole animal, you know, you, you, every, every bit of that animal, it seems to be very important it's a big part of your philosophy and the way you do things is that you know for someone who doesn't really understand butchery like me is that not typical or do other butcher are there butchers that are just throwing away a lot of the animals that they're using so i guess the 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 best way to put it it it, it, it in general when a person walks into a grocery store okay and it doesn't matter what chain grocery store it is, right? Or a big box store, right? Like even if you're just going into Walmart or you're going into Costco or, uh, you know, BJ's or any of these places, right? Um, these places are buying what I'll refer to as commodity boxed meat, right? And all of that is a, uh, a function of this, sort of industrial farming complex, right? Where, um, I guess, is there a farm? Is there a farmer? Yes, but only by loose definition, right? These people have land, uh, they've got a feedlot, they are cramming as many animals per square inch as they can possibly have. They are feeding them the worst feed that they can give them. They're putting as much um, antibiotic and growth hormone in them as they are allowed to so that these animals can grow as fast and as cheap as possible so that they can get them to market and get a return on investment, right? There's, there's no real other philosophy to it other than straight, uh, capitalism, right? Um, and that's not to say that they're wasting anything. And that's not to say that grocery stores and other styles of butcher shops that are dealing with this kind of commodity meat aren't uh, a legitimate uh, a business model because they are and they're feeding people. And, you know, that feeding our population is obviously an important thing. You know, my business kind of comes at it from a different perspective, which is if if we can support local agriculture, if we can take mm. money from the local uh, uh, population and put that directly back into the local agricultural infrastructure and support those farmers, then that does a lot of good for our you know, our local economy. But then you take that one step further and you say that the farmers that we're partnering with are, they're, they're actively participating in regenerative agricultural processes, right? So not just 
the uh, you know the capitalistic nature of produce something and sell it. They're actually trying to make our you know our environment a better place. They're trying to take care of the land. They're trying to um, raise animals in a humane way and to bring them to market in a way that is good for the environment, good for the animal and good for the, uh, the end user, right. Which is us. So, you know, we're, we're kind of a, you know, the things that make us tick are all of these things, right. Um, obviously as a, as a chef, my wife and I, um, we, we, we try to use our training to take, that whole animal, right? So most places to kind of, uh, I'm sorry that I got off on a little bit of a tangent there, okay, that even, though, it. even though it's a part of it, right? So most of these places, they're going to bring in cases, right? So like they're going to bring in a box that has nothing but ribeyes, or they're going to bring in a box that has nothing but tenderloins to make filet mignon, right? Um, and therefore, you can go into a place like that and you can kind of know that no matter what, you're going to be able to get a ribeye. You're going to be able to get a filet mignon. You're going to be able to get a strip steak. Um, We approach it from an aspect of there are so many more texture and flavor opportunities that are just not those three things. Right. So we're trying to use our understanding of cooking and and food to to bring these uh, other diverse opportunities to to you know to our consumers that they can possibly even think of, and um, so the answer is yes, we're unique. Um, no, we're not inventing anything. We're uh, we're just we're bringing something that used to be prevalent everywhere which is this idea of cooking versus the sort of culinary apathy that has kind of taken over modern society um over the last i don't know three decades how do you find the the farms i mean at this point i'm sure they knock on your door but at the beginning when you first hung your shingle in the South Ledge, like how did you then figure out what farms you're going to work with? And then how do you do quality control on them to make sure they're raising your animals the way that you want them to be raised? Is it is it just a, a visit once in a while or is there like some sort of formal audit program or how does how does that work? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, there, there certainly is very little formal about it with regards to us and our partnership with these farms, right? Yes, it was, it was visits and it was tours and it was conversations, um, about their philosophy and their practices and, you know, the sort of the why for them behind what they were doing. Right. So, uh, you know, that we could feel good to partner with these people. And, you know, from my experience in the industry, when you find these, these, these farmers that are doing things the way that uh, you believe in them to be done, right, where 
their their breeding programs and their feeding programs are are in line uh with with what you believe in you know you can start to kind of dial in what your expectations are of a quality perspective from what you're going to receive from them and you know at that point it's just getting used to mother nature right i can guarantee you that 80 per 75 to 80 percent of the time i'm going to know very closely what the 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 sort of you know when you think about beef right the the grading criteria you know select choice prime with regards to marbling and things of that nature right I can know 75% 75 to 80% of the time that you know like the beef I'm going to get in is going to be high choice into prime and that's something I can hang my hat on but at the same time I also have to be cognizant of the fact that mother nature is a fickle lady and she's going to throw you a, a curveball every now and then and you're going to get something that is a little less marble that's a little leaner that um, might not have the the vibrant color that you're looking for. And, you know, that's an important conversation, not just for me to be able to have with my farmer. It's an important conversation for me to be able to understand so that I can have that conversation with my customers uh, so that they understand that this is all part of the process, right? Like, just because you know, this animal might not be marbled as well as the previous animal that they they bought doesn't mean that the whole process is broken. It's just mother nature. It's it's the it's the reality of what it all is. And if they are going to support the ideas that we're trying to put forth then they have to also support the uh, you know, that 15 10 to 15 percent of the time that's something not going to come in great. You know, can I ask you a question? I'm embarrassed to ask because sure. I, I've always wondered this and I've never known the answer. <laughs> and now I got a meat expert on it. So I got Kobe beef, the like the Japan stuff that they that they say is like the best. Oh, it's the best. It's the best, 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 best. And I look at it, it just looks like it's all fat. I don't. What? Well, I'm embarrassed. I don't understand. Well, I mean, you shouldn't be embarrassed. Number one, because I mean. <laughs> If you don't know, that means you just haven't had somebody who, who can teach you the difference. And yeah. the, the truth of it is, is, um, you know, through my education in this industry, I've had a lot of it. You know, the Japanese, the American, the Australian, the, the hybrids of every spot in between. And it's it is a different thing. Right. Um do I necessarily always think it's worth the money? No. Right. Um, but is it, is it worth trying once? Is it worth uh, the experience of saying that you've done it a hundred percent? But I guess the, the, the pushback that I have is, um, you know, are you going to necessarily remember what the difference is of that, you know, you know, a five Wagyu that you just had, are you going to understand what the difference is between that and any other beef you've had after the experience two, three days later without any perspective? Probably not. Right. No. But 
it's cool to say that you've done it by far. It, I mean, do it, do it once, but it's not like you're going to sit down with a big Wagyu ribeye. That's right. just not the experience that you should be looking to have. You know, if you go to somewhere and they're going to serve you anything more than like a five or six ounce piece as a part of a tasting, then even that restaurant and that chef are thinking about it in a, a, the wrong context also. So it's meant to be enjoyed in, in, in small pieces. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Cause it's so rich. It's so rich and it's so fatty that like, just yeah, couple, couple bites. You're good. Well, yeah, because this is why just as a layman, it, you know, they say, Oh, filet mignon is the best steak. And you look at it and it's, Oh, cause it's got no fat on it. Look, it's all, it's all meat. Right. Then they go, Oh no, but you got to try this Kobe. And I look at that and I'm like, but that, it looks like that's all fat. That seems like that would be a bad steak. And I, well, <laughs> let's, let's just get one thing really clear. Because, yeah. like, you know, I'm going to say that uh, Wagyu is, it's a worthy experience, right? Okay. But whoever they, that you just referenced, told yeah. you that tenderloin or filet is the best steak, they are assholes. Yeah, okay, so. The, the, those <laughs> those people, they, they're in a different category of don't trust that person. Okay, so. I just listen. Hold on, I'm going to tell you who the assholes are for a second. Okay. I'm just name names, I'm, name names, buddy. Stay Patricia close. and Charles Guglielmo raised me. <laughs> they were like, "Oh, filet mignon," but I don't. But Kevin, we don't know. My parents don't know. They're not. In, my dad worked in a factory. My mom was a teacher. Like they don't know. They're just like, "Oh, filet mignon." They, they must be rich. That was like what we would say if someone ordered a filet mignon. So educate me. What is what is the thing? What's the it, steak? Know, what do I? And by the way, let me just text my. I gotta let my mom know she's an asshole. Hold on. A <laughs> you answer. <laughs> uh, you know, here's the thing. Tenderloin people people have this perception of tenderness equals quality. Mm. Right. And I, to a certain degree, they're right. Right. I mean, like, you're not going to take, you're not going to cook a brisket like a steak. But that also doesn't mean that a brisket, when cooked properly, isn't a wonderful thing all by itself. Right. And that has to do with various muscles across an entire animal. Um, I think that tenderloin uh filet has just got a really good publicist and um you know it, the truth of the matter is there's two things that give meat flavor it's the amount of fat that it has internal what we know is marbling and the amount of work that that muscle did to actually and not to make this weird, but to uh, uh, pump in and out of that muscle blood, which will have brought nutrients and therefore flavor to that muscle. So that's why things like brisket that uh, that are harder, that are tougher meats, have so much flavor, but require extra cooking technique to make uh, tender and palatable to us to chew. Whereas something like a tenderloin, which does almost no work whatsoever, is ultimately unbelievably tender, right? You can push your fork through it, 
but has very little flavor in and of itself. That's why when you go to a restaurant, you'll see filet that has been uh, herb or pepper crusted that comes with a big, heavy, you know, butter sauce or a red, you know, a wine reduction or, or things of these nature because they're trying to bring flavor to it rather than let the flavor of the meat do its thing. What about this? Is something I've always heard when you go to a when you go to a steakhouse and you order the steak, you do not order sauce to go with it because if the steak is cooked correctly, it shouldn't require sauce. Is that correct, or am I incorrect? Is there a whole art of steak sauce? Here's my other thing, and <laughs> and uh, so we've been doing this thing at the shop where on Fridays we bring this new. Uh, wood fire grill that we have out onto the patio and our friday special at the shop is a dry aged top sirloin and typically we just do it in-house but now we've been doing it out in the patio over the wood fire and it's just a fun experience obviously there's flavor benefits but it's you know it's a little bit of a show it's an opportunity for me to kind of talk with our customers and so on and so forth But I I tell you all of that to tell you this, which is my father's birthday was at the beginning of October, and uh, I invited he and his golf buddy to come out and have lunch with us. And I cooked him a beautiful steak. I, you know, they're sitting right next to me at the grill. I I put it down for them. And and my kids wanted to come out and have a, a little bit of lunch with grandpa. It was a day that they didn't have school. So Um, they came out with some fries and some ketchup and there's my father taking this beautiful dry aged wood fired steak that I had made for him for his birthday. And the asshole is dipping it in the ketchup. (laughs) Okay. And I announce, and I announce to the entire assembled group of customers that are sitting on our patio. I said, Hey, here's the thing. Uh, when I tell you, I don't care how you eat your steak. I mean it. And I mean it to the point where I don't even care that my father is that asshole who's dipping his steak in ketchup. If you want some A1, I'll go down the street and I'll buy you a bottle of it to put put on your steak. If you want it well done, if you want me to hammer that thing until it's charcoal, I'll do it for you. Um, And I guess – it, it, you know, there's snobs out there that'll tell you how you should eat your steak and, and what you should and should not like your steak because of. But ultimately, it comes down to this. If you paid me for your steak, I like how you ate it, period. <laughs> right. That's a great answer to that. I mean, why be judgy? You know, I good. I'm not in the business. I'm not in the business of yucking somebody else's yum. Period. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk business for a second. So, one thing I remember from earlier in this conversation is you were talking about wanting to get into catering because any food you buy at that point is already sold, which is a great idea. That, of course, great idea. What you're doing now seems very much the opposite. It seems like what you're doing now is. You're bringing in. You probably have a lot of cash sitting in that in in that shop. Not cash, but you know what I mean. Uh, you have a lot of inventory, which sure. to a business owner just looks like a big pile of cash until you sell it. it. Is that was that difficult to manage at first? I'm sure now you figured it out, right? At this point, you know what your flow is going to be. P 
peaks and valleys. But at the very beginning, was it hard for you to figure out how much to buy, how much to have there? It's still terrifying. Mm. Um, You know, uh, just like any, I mean, obviously there's things, there's strategies that we can employ to um, make sure that, you know, nothing is going to waste, right? That's number one, the reason why we have the extensive uh, list of products that we make with everything, right? That's, that's why we have so many different products that we make from sausages to deli meats to cured and smoked to charcuterie to, to the, the prepared foods kitchen and so on and so forth, right? It, it, it's all to try to have a one animal in one animal out kind of economy. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the seasonality of things plays a huge part in that. Um, you know, it, and there's this kind of hilarious way that Mother Nature just kind of has this cyclical nature of things where, you know, right now, here we are, we're at the end of October, right? And so my shelves that have all of my my dry aged meat on them are starting to really pile up a little bit right and at first that really gave me a lot of anxiety but so now i understand that that's actually to my benefit because as i start to stockpile those things and we get into the holidays i have all of those things to sell and all of those things then sell out we get to the first of the year the shelves are empty and I can start to accumulate again. And that's beneficial because in the new year, people kind of tighten up their, their belts. They tighten up their wallets and aren't necessarily spending on things uh, of a um, kind of splurge nature. Right. Um, and so I can start to accumulate again. And that's great because then by the time that spring rolls around and grills come back out, I have as much as I'm going to need for the heavy grilling season. And then the grilling season starts to wane and then we're back into where we are right now. So there, there is this very cyclical nature of things, but it is also very easy to let that get away from you. And um, whereas a more traditional restaurant can have an inventory that is while a pain in the ass to have to, you know, compile on a monthly basis it isn't necessarily the uh the best way for a place like us to be able to try to quantify what we have in real time because something as simple as i brought it up earlier is brisket right so i might have fresh brisket uh i could have brisket that is currently uh on brine for corned beef I could have brisket that uh, I just uh, uh, smoked for for corned beef that is now a, a ready to eat item, but I could have brisket that is rubbed and being ready to make barbecue brisket from. I could have brisket that is uh, sliced and sauced and ready for the kitchen. So I could have brisket in and of itself, just that one item in up to 10 different varieties in my kitchen. And that's just one muscle. And, you know, there's a multitude of different muscles of every single animal that we carry. So the inventory of things is 
pretty amorphous and it exists in this very um, abstract way in my head that kind of makes sense, but would make most business owners absolutely crazy. <laughs> sure. How did you find that spot where you are? It's it's so perfect. But I think when you moved in there, I don't recall if cut was cub room in before you or were you in before them? So uh cub room was there before us, but okay. only briefly. Uh okay. and we found that place by sheer dumb luck. Okay. Um my wife and I had signed a lease um, in Brighton, actually, on Monroe, uh, across from Cook's World. It's now a, a medical um, it's a medical supply depot of some kind. I know it, right it was, where you're uh, talking about. I live right was, about there. It was the old fleet feet before yeah. they moved into the armory. Um, but long story short, we had signed a lease contingent upon town approval uh, for that spot. And the town of Brighton came back with this sort of uh, dubious exemption of code where no butcher shops were allowed to open in the area. <laughs> what? Um, and we found out about this. We found out about this quite literally as my wife and I were boarding a plane to go to South Korea to visit her family in 2014. And so you think it's a done deal. You're like, we've got a spot. It's happening. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're about to get on an airplane. You get the email that says, oh, sorry, Brighton doesn't allow butchery. <laughs> it's like seven o'clock in the morning. And we get a contact from our lawyer. It says, nope, sorry, can't do it. And I'm like, you got to be shitting me. So we're, we're, I'm in South Korea for five weeks and I, I can't look at places. I can't, uh, I can't do anything other than just sort of like send emails back and forth with our real estate agent. Um, but we got back and, uh, you know, we had looked at several locations, um, with our current landlord and they finally got back in contact with us and we're like, look, we, we've got a spot. Um, it, it might be good for you. It might not be, but you know, we think it might be a good fit. So we went and looked at it and, uh, it's actually where the, the Glick fit gym is right now was going to be the location that we signed for. And there was another client who was going to take our current space, but, you know, we kind of beat him to the punch as far as signing a lease. Cub Room had already signed. Uh, we kind of uh, did a little bit of internet stalking and, and found them and sat down at a coffee shop with them and kind of had a really beautiful conversation. Um, you know, another husband and wife, cup, uh, you know, team that, um, you know, Greg, the chef there, was a CIA graduate as well. So we were you know, speaking the same vernacular with regards to food and, and what our background was and what we believed in. And uh, so we kind of had this this drive to make the property at the edge of the wedge kind of this this culinary destination and, and drive South Clinton Avenue and that ed, that end of the South Wedge. And, and, you know, here we are. Yeah, that's a 
that's a hell of a story because I, I got to tell you, I am a, I'm a Brighton resident, and I've heard some wacky shit. And I like Brighton. I like Brighton a lot. But this one is is one of the best stories I've heard. Yours. Uh, my neighbor wanted to extend their house. Uh, on one side, my neighbor wanted to extend their house. They wanted to extend back, go back. I don't know, twenty feet or something. Extend their kitchen, their garage, etc. And the town of Brighton told them no. And part of the reason why was because we don't think that's enough backyard for you. And also, why do you need a kitchen that big? (laughs) What? As if it's their business, right? Um, Their business. Yeah. yeah, So we had to, they told us that if we had gotten enough uh, community support behind us, like neighborhood support, that they might consider an exemption. Uh, so, you know, we, we had, a we, we put out flyers and, you know, door to door, we had a little meeting with the, the couple of blocks that were in radius of that location. We had a bunch of people show up, uh, that were interested in what we were trying to do. And of course, you know, us being business people, we tried to ply them with delicious meats and, and, uh, uh, things that we produce, and, and I think that it went well. There was, you know, a, really only one uh, uh, group that, you know, family, household that, that showed up against it. But um, they were going to be against any business that went in their period. But long story short, the, the sort of the long story of it was coming out of that meeting the people who owned ours market at the time approached us and said, you know, listen, we're going to be trying to sell our business. And if you'd like to buy our business and buy us out of our current lease, maybe you can take over this pre-existing business that is grandfathered into being a butcher shop. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can take this place over, but you know, the space, the square footage, um, there were a lot of things about it that just didn't quite work with our business model. So we ended up going in a different direction. Um, how crazy is that too? Because just again, as a Brighton resident, ours market is, is like beloved here. Like how, how do they have ours market that's butchering <laughs> and they love it. And then here comes Kevin McCann. Like I'm going to butcher in this town. And they're like, Nope, no good. It's just wow. grandfathered in because they were there and there's a couple of butcher spots up in, in, you know, the five corner, the 12 corners area that, you know, there's, there's spots in there and it just had to do with when they were originated. Right. And apparently the, the new code exemption that they put into the zoning law was put in, in like 1995, but there were also no, um, there was no description as to why or uh, for what purpose right. it was put in so to silly. practice. Oh, it's so silly. So it's like it's like uh, it's like, I'm just picturing some guy sitting at a town meeting in 1995, and they're just getting ready. To, they're like, "All right, this uh, this round of the code is we're closing the book unless there's anything else." And, what, and Ralph sitting in the back raises his hand. Hey, one more thing. No butchers. We got yep. enough of them. <laughs> like, yep. oh, we'll write it in here, Ralph. Thanks. No more butchers. What the hell? Oh, anyway. Well, you know what? It worked out for the better anyway, because I can't think of a better location than where you are. It's and for what it's worth, it's where you belong. 
for for what it's worth, you know, um, the city of Rochester has been nothing but good to us. Yeah. Um, you know, not just with the location, our proximity to 490, our, uh, you know, our, you know, our, our uh, ease of access to lots of the different suburbs here on the east side and, and even to people north and, and, and west of the city because of how close we are to 490. Um, but like the actual city of Rochester and their desire to put money into businesses in the city. I mean, that, you know, I know that not everybody has this, uh, this rosy uh, uh, outlook with the city, but man, I, I gotta be honest. They, they've been nothing but good to us. So no, but I, you know, I feel like business owners usually do have good things to say about the city of Rochester. It's, you know, it's always, it's always like people that live in the suburbs that hate the city of Rochester. It's never business owners seem to dig it for the most part. Not that that's perfect. Nothing's perfect, but correct. Yeah. See, mostly perfect. Mostly, mostly good. Um, how do you like South Korea? Because your wife, obviously being from there, and when you said how long you spent there, I mean, cool. That's so cool. I mean, how do you like that culture? How do you like the food? Tell me about South Korea. You know, learning about my wife through food um, has been interesting. Being able to experience her culture by actually being in the country was pretty amazing. Um, and the access that we had to it specifically because her family is still there is something that, you know, you, you can't duplicate unless those circumstances are also in your favor. Um, and so, I, I mean, it, it was tremendous. It, it really was, you know, all the different places that we were able to eat, all the, the places that we were able to sort of travel around to and see, and and to you know not just do the go to New York City and go to the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building, but to like you know go to the actual local spots and do things the way that they would go about things, the way that they would go about their life, and um and it, it you know now with sort of the popularity of sort of South Korean culture through lots of different aspects through um, food and, and cinema and TV and, you know, things of that nature that are becoming more prevalent around. Um, it's interesting that like, uh, you know, something specifically relevant now, right? Like uh, uh, squid game, right. That people are watching on Netflix, right. Um, or, uh, Minari, which, you know, was up for Oscars or, you know, um, all of these other aspects of culture that I can now watch and have a, a more in-depth understanding of through my experience with my wife and things that she can further describe to me and why they're relevant and why they're in, you know, things, you know, even um, there's a, another show on, on Netflix, uh, a Korean Pork Belly Rhapsody, or, or I forget the, the last word, but another amazing show that sort of really gets in depth about sort of Korean culinary 
culture. But, you know, even when we were there, we were going around to different butcher shops, you know, um, you know, cause we knew what we were going to do. And so we went to these like, you know, major food markets in Seoul. Um, and you know, you go at like three o'clock in the morning when they're getting their delivery and you can watch these butchers do what they do to get prepared for the market the next morning. And, um, you know, it's, it's wildly fascinating to see the way that they go about their business, not just in, um, the way that they cut things, but why they cut things the way they do. Um, you know, like for, for instance, most of everything that they do with pork is all, or, or beef, it's all boneless, right? There's not a lot of bone in product. Um, so they break things down even more intricately than we would in my butcher shop and to see them do that and to see what the end product is and where they're going with all of these different things was fascinating. But then, you know, even to, to understand that the, the three butchers that I watched break down 150 pigs in three hours. 150 pigs in three hours. Wow. I'm going to say that one more time. 150 pigs in three hours. These guys, uh, they were, it was like a blur watching these guys move and their knife skills were so amazing. But also they're paid by the, the, the side of animal, not by the hour. So if they're not good, they're not going to be asked back. But also, if they take too long, then they're not going to be a good member of the crew, and they're going to bring somebody else in. So these guys are just this well-oiled machine that just rock through stuff, and then they can either go home and sleep, or they can go to their second or third job, right? So it was so much fascinating about it. But um, again, you as another big guy, you'll find this fascinating. There's no... um, there's no translation for like, excuse me. Really? Korea. (laughs) So like, there's like this, still this remnant of like third world developing country where there's this kind of need to like kind of fight and claw for everything that you need. And so, you know, you'll, you'll be walking down the sidewalk and if you're not walking fast enough, or if you're just in somebody's way, they're going to push you aside to get past you. <laughs> and so like, you know, I'm, my wife had explained this to me. And so I'm walking down the street and I kind of, I catch eyes with this, this, this old woman. And I, and I, I shit you not. I saw her like get this like little brief shit eating grin on her face because in retrospect, she was thinking, I'm going to get this big white fucker. <laughs> and she just kept walking dead straight and she wasn't going to flinch. She wasn't going to move. And, you know, at the You're last game of chicken. Yeah. And at the last second, you know, I, I just kind of like gave way and let her walk past me, you know, trying to be polite about it. And in retrospect, she probably, you know, for 
another block was laughing her ass off about it. But you know, she spotted you, man. Yeah. She said, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> He's not gonna have the balls. I'm going right at him. <laughs> yeah. Guilty. Your wife, uh, I met very briefly, but I know if you know Kevin is the guy who always ends up. You're the guy that's on the radio. You're the guy that's on TV. You're the face and everything. But your wife is so instrumental in McCann's, isn't she? I think anyone who can read between the lines or who shows up and sees her there understands that. And you mentioned earlier, I think you said she's also a trained chef. Is that right? Yeah. My my wife is uh, one of the most talented chefs that I know. She is period point blank the hardest working most dedicated person i know um my wife is the terminator that arnold schwarzenegger wanted to be period like there's no stop there's no no there's no like you're not getting in her way because she's going to go over you and through you and um it's uh the success of McCann's local meats is much less to do with me and much more to do with her period. Is it true? And I just, I think I just saw this. Is it true that uh, you're dusting off your old theater boots and we'll be playing the lead in uh, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory at RBTL here in a couple of weeks. Can we break some news? Is that true? Are you? not true uh i I will i will scratch that itch at some point but uh it's it's not in the near future kevin thanks for doing this man it's it's great talking to you you're such a wealth of knowledge you're so humble and um god get good luck i mean mccann not the indian i guess we all need some luck right we all need luck it's never over especially now especially now yeah, none of us are ever all set. I mean, especially now. What What is it? Well, yeah, actually, let, let me ask you one or two more questions about this. What is it like now? I mean, how's it been? It, it, what, you know, our, I don't even know really where to start on this thing. I mean, pri- here's the thing. People who buy food know this. And to tell me if I'm wrong, but price increases on everything, right, across the board. Mm. You experiencing that as well? So... Because of what our sourcing is with regards specifically to meat, um, mm-hmm. we're, we're not immune to it, uh, but it manifests itself in a much different way, right? Uh, so one of the reasons that the, the price of commodity meat that you'll find in most grocery stores, whether it's organic or, or of a lesser grade or whatever – the reason all those prices have has gone up is because, um, you know, labor shortages in major processing facilities, and with the reduced staffing in those processing facilities, um, whether it's just through um, wage increases for those employees or so many less employees that so many more people are getting overtime to do things and the the less things that they're the the less products that they're able to actually produce within those facilities because of the reduced staff and all of the things that go with it that's why your prices have gone up in grocery stores right it's 
and, and then, you know, on top of it, you can't find the people to transport through trucking and other, uh, you know, various other means that way. So there's lots of reasons why your prices in the grocery stores have gone up. The reasons why my prices have gone up has less to do with that and has more to do with, um, because, you know, I'm just buying from a farmer. My farmer is still just raising animals, right? But even here in this area at the, the facilities where animal becomes meat, um, the even they're having staffing shortages. But also the farmers locally in the last year and a half have found that uh, their their own direct to customer uh, uh, sales have been better than they have ever been. So more farmers are trying to bring animals to market than ever before, and so the bottleneck at processing locally has gotten even worse. Um, so, you know, my prices have gone up a little bit because of that, but also just for things like paper, plastic. Uh, tin foil, uh, all of these packaging and and sort of like ancillary, secondary things that we need to be able to do our jobs. Those prices have gone through the roof, and that's affected us a little bit, right? Um, and me too, by the way. The package, like you say, packaging materials. It's one of my biggest expenses. I mean, I, I what do I spend money? On? I spend money on labor, yep. packaging, ingredients. It, packaging is through the roof and it doesn't stop every three months i get a phone call telling me oh price is going up again but but and it's not just so you know it's not just the um the jars that you're gonna buy to put your sauce in it's the labels that go onto your jars it's the lids that go onto your jars it's the gloves that the people who are working in the facility to make and and jar your sauce where things like gloves are, are unbelievably expensive now. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you can just think about that, that basic thing, right. Where the general public wants us to be food safe. So they want, they want us to wear gloves, right? Well, when the price of gloves has tripled and quadrupled, over the last, you know, in, in depending on the type of glove you buy, maybe even tenfold, uh, when that price has gone up so so steeply, then yeah, of course, then you have to also kind of follow suit and increase your prices a little bit. But you know, the the industry is wild right now. Um, I'll say that you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're not in the business of being able to be nimble and kind of, uh, adapt on the fly, then you, you know, you were not meant to be in small business probably to begin with, but even this is an unprecedented time. Um, the pivot, it's the pivot. It's the, uh, it's, you know, it's a, I'm so glad you say that it's, you have to be willing to be wrong all the time. And I, I got to try and figure out how I'm trying to say that. Like, some people are too prideful to be wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like some people are just, it doesn't matter what they're talking about. They could be arguing about sports. They're not wrong. They can't be wrong. They'll never be wrong. But when you're running your business, you might create a plan and then that plan might get blown up because you have to go to plan B. 
you can't be you can't have your mind and your heart set on plan a you can't be you can't refuse to admit that plan a was wrong you have to be ready to say oh that that's no longer the right plan now plan b is the right plan so when we when we opened in 2015 um one of my mentors in 2013 had uh had sold his business started up an entirely new business and his whole business model let's let's talk about this out loud he was going to sell meat in vending machines Uh that's all he was going to do he wasn't going to have a normal retail experience of any kind he was going to limit his overhead by having a production facility in the middle of nowhere that was going to be very cheap. He was going to have small footprint retail spots with no employees that was just all self-service vending machines. And I told that man he was a lunatic. You fast forward to uh, March of 2020 when he, you know, called me for, I don't know, the 12th or 15th time and said, so what do you think now? And I was like, yeah, I need, I need those machines right now. Yeah. Not now, but right now. And there, and there you have it. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kevin, it was so great talking to you, man. Thanks. I, when we started this conversation, I was in the parking lot of my factory in Bergen, and now I'm sitting in the uh, parking lot of East Ave Wegmans getting ready to go in. It's 9.30 at night on Saturday. I'm getting ready to go in and uh, get some grub. There you go. <laughs> so uh, which one of your sauces are you going to go in and buy? Is, is the oh, come on. You know what? It's, it is embarrassing. Sometimes I do. You know what I've done, and it is embarrassing when I do it, is I will be on my way to a meeting or something, and I always like to give out freebies anytime I go to a meeting. Sometimes I don't have anything on me, and I'll stop at the store and buy my own stuff just so that I can give it to whoever I'm about to meet with. And it's always embarrassing that I see someone that I know, and they're like, what are you doing? So <laughs> I can't let you get away with this, though, because I get asked this question all the time when people yeah. are standing at my counter, and they'll be like, okay, so what's your favorite steak or what's your favorite sausage, right? Like, yeah. So, like, you're on the spot right now, Polly. Like, what of your sauces is your favorite sauce? It's lame. It's boring. It's the answer is the original because that's that was my grandpa's sauce. That's the stuff that I grew up with. That's what I will make tomorrow morning, Sunday morning. I will make what's in that original marinara jar. That's it. So it's the original. But the thing is, we started the business and we just had these two you know, kind of regular flavors. And while I loved them very much, they're just regular red sauce to most people. I get it. So we had to do a bunch of wacky stuff, come up with weird flavors, toasted onion and garlic, butternut squash, pasta fagiole, rosa, spicy, chunky veggie, Sunday sauce, right? We had to get like creative and become like the Tom and Jerry's of local pasta sauce. And so I love pushing those flavors on people because I'm like, look, this is something no one else is doing because the red sauces, the original sauces, are things other people are doing however when push comes to shove that is my favorite the original i have to admit it it's you lame kevin it's lame no no here's what it is Polly. it's it's fucking beautiful right and that's think. exactly what it should be because it means something to you it me yeah. that's why you started your business is because of that yes. connection with your grandpa and the sauce so it's beautiful it's not it's not lame at all dude 
can I tell you another funny story about going grocery shopping is something that'll happen every once in a while. And, and I, I honestly, I don't mind. I get it. Okay. I get it. But sometimes I'll be in Wegmans or wherever I'm shopping and I'll come across somebody I know and they'll have like <laughs> some other sauce in their cart. Yeah. And <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. are so embarrassed. And I'm always like, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. We get, we get invited. So like, the, you know, in my in our neighborhood there'll be like a block party that they'll have once a summer right dinosaur barbecue and we'll show up yeah and inevitably it turns into just this big procession of apologies and i'm like everybody relax you know like <laughs> it's cool you can make better decisions, but I'm not going to, like, everything is fine, you know? <laughs> fine. Like, it's fine. I, I think I remember, oh, God, a good restaurant tour. I, I was I used to be self-conscious about my price back in the day when I first started, because $6 a jar of sauce. I was always self-conscious. You know, number one complaint I would always get is, yeah, that's spending 6 bucks on a jar of sauce, buddy. So I was self-conscious about it for the first probably good year. And I'm not anymore. I haven't been for a long time. I've gotten way over that. And at this point, you know, I, I, uh, I'm all about it. And I, I believe it's, it's worth every penny, if not more. And I, anyway, I used to get self-conscious about that. And I think I remember I went to do a, uh, for whatever reason, I met with Charlie Fitzsimmons, who's the owner of like Black and Blue, Village Bakery, Trotta, Jojo. And I was telling him, because Black and Blue is obviously not the cheapest restaurant in town. None of those are. And I was, I was telling him, I was like, what do you do about people bitch about your price? What do you do about that? And he goes, he says, it's fine. He says, they're not for you. And he pointed at McDonald's and he was like, look at McDonald's. They do a lot more business on a daily basis than I do. I'm going to sure. be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I got to go inside, get something to eat. Buddy, great to talk to you, man. It's been a while, but yeah. Uh... I'm glad we had an opportunity. Oh, I have to ask you one more question. I'm sorry. I meant to ask you this. My my father-in-law told me this. Is it true that you do your French fries the way McDonald's did theirs back in the day and like beef fat or something like that? Yeah. So that's like, I don't want to call it a gimmick, right? But that's, that's like one of our things that like catches people. Um, we, We take all the fat off of the beef animals. We grind it so that it will render easily and then strain it. And that's what we fill our fryers with. And, you know, it's one of those from a business sense, you've got, you've got this delicious, wonderful fat. So why not use it? But from a culinary sense, it's delicious. But then, you know, also, I mean, it's not health food, but it's more healthy than just using the, hydrogenated vegetable oil that most people put in their fryers to begin with. So, you know, we can feel good about that too. You know, Kevin, thanks, man. You got it, buddy. Great to hear from you.